I'm about two weeks ahead in our First Corinthians study, and it has just been really neat. Can we have the house lights, please? It's been really neat to uh, just go through it and see what Paul has to say. But before we jump in this morning, I want you to be praying about a couple of things. Tomorrow, our youth are leaving for the coast, and they're going on a four or five day trip. Um, makes me miss my days as youth pastor. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> and also, there's a meet and greet for those of you who signed up uh, right after service today. But uh, have you ever noticed how some people can get so hyper-focused on minor things in life? And they get so hyper-focused on those minor things and they start to neglect the major things. You ever see that? This can happen in church as well. And, you know, church is supposed to be about a few things. We're told very clearly in Scripture what we're going to be about. We are first and foremost to be about glorifying God. That's number one. Then we're about equipping the saints, edification of the body, hearing the gospel, and finally and last is fellowship. Forbes had an article this week that I read, and it asked the question, are you majoring in minoring? Keep focused on what matters most. The author said, never let the stuff that matters the least keep us from the stuff that matters most, because it often does. The author went on and said, in our age of hyper-distraction, one of the biggest challenges for most of us is staying focused on what really matters most. The author went on to say, you probably feel pulled in several directions. Juggling things in, in your effort to manage conflicting commitments and schedules and responsibilities and expectations. However, she says, unless you're very careful, you can easily find yourself spread very thin and you'll begin majoring on the minor activities, being super busy, but catch this, but not effective at all. I can relate. Please open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians as we continue that verse-by-verse -verse study from the Apostle Paul. And as you're turning there, let's catch up real quick where we were from last week. Last week we learned about some of the issues that Paul wrote to this church. Some of the issues were divisions in the church, divorce, sexual sins, food offered to idols, the exercise of spiritual gifts, the collection for the poor, and on and on. And this church had all these things going on. And the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to that church as not only a correction, but as an encouragement to, hey, be set apart for the Lord. And, and so today, we're, the lesson is all about instructions on focusing on the main things and also the promise that Jesus will establish his followers. Jesus will establish us. So if you have your sermon notes, they're on your chairs. Roman number one, gifted Christians. Gifted Christians. If your Bibles are open, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, let's begin at verse 4. The Apostle Paul says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you are enriched in everything by Him in all utterance and all knowledge. Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you, how long? To the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because verse 9, God is faithful, 
by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, once you're saved, if you're truly a converted person, if you've truly been born again, you receive at least one spiritual gift. Most of the times, people get many spiritual gifts. We were all created with certain gifts and talents and abilities, and these are given from the Lord to be used for the Lord. Got it? So all Christians may have different functions within the body, but there's only one body. We're all the same body. And so all members are members of Christ's body, His church. And so notice Paul thanks God for the grace of God that these followers, catch this, were gifted and enriched through Christ in all utterance and knowledge. So let's break down these words really quick. We're not going to kind of park here, but I want to just talk about these words really quick. The grace of God. That means, of course, unearned, undeserved favor and blessing and kindness of God. It's a gift. Undeserved. Unearned. But then he says you were enriched through Christ. If you look it up in the Greek, it means so much more than the English, but it means to make wealthy. To make wealthy. To be furnished with great wealth. Great wealth. But then notice he says all utterance. This is the ability to speak or teach the Word of God. And then the next one's important to go with that is knowledge. This is moral wisdom, but it's a deeper understanding of the things of God. And those are gifts. So if somebody has great knowledge of the Word of God, if somebody has the ability to speak the Word of God, it's a gift. That's not something by natural ability. So this church at Corinth had some very gifted people. And they had some very gifted teachers. But, there in your notes, as C.H. Virgin said, the Corinthian Christians were indeed gifted, yet carnal. Should it not show us that gifts are nothing unless they are laid on the altar of God? You can be the most eloquent of speakers, and I'm not. <laughs> you can have all wisdom and all knowledge, and unless you offer that gift back to the feet of Jesus Christ, it means absolutely nothing. But notice the word confirm in verse 6. Catch what this means. Confirm. It means to make firm, to make sure, to establish. And who does that for you? Who establishes you? Who makes sure for you? Who gives you that sure foundation? God alone. It's the same word we learned several weeks ago when we were in Colossians 2.7. It says, built up in him and established in the faith. Established is a building term specifically talking about a good, firm foundation. So there in your notes. How is a Christian established or made sure? Where does your hope come from? Where does the promise come from? The work of God and the testimony of Christ were confirmed in these believers. And it was made known to them through the word of God. Then notice, and this is awesome, so that you come short in no gift as you're eagerly waiting for the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when Jesus Christ ascended back to the Father, that's when the church age began. 
The next thing that's going to happen within the realm of time is the rapture of the church. And when that happens, all the Christians are taken out of the world. And right then, at that moment, the seven-year great tribulation begins. After the seven-year tribulation, Jesus comes, wins the battle of Armageddon against the rulers of this world, and then finally, he rules and reigns here for a thousand years. It's called the millennial reign of Christ. There are your notes. Catch this, it's important. First century Christians anticipated Christ's soon return. They were eagerly waiting for the revelation, which means the revealing, of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes, everyone loves end time events. You know, they want to hear all the gore. They want to hear about the blood, the tires, the horses, bridles. They want to hear all this stuff. But really, the whole book of Revelation is to reveal who Jesus really is. And, and with all the recent events, you know, you know COVID and the, the, the politics that are going on and the health issues and the famines and the diseases and all this stuff, they're just birth pains. And with all these birth pains happening around, a lot of Christians are looking, going, look here, end times. Look here, Antichrist. End times, end times, end times. Well, let me tell you something. God told me very clearly, he knows when, and he'll let you know. <laughs> the Apostle John in 1 John 2.28 said this, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it didn't know him. What's so cool if you read over this in your own time that in the first 10 verses of 1 Corinthians, Jesus is mentioned 11 times. 11 times in 10 verses. And, and this is what Dave Guzik had to say about that. In this emphasis on Jesus, Paul promotes the sure cure for the problems of the Corinthians. And what was it? To get your eyes off of self and put them firmly on Jesus Christ. Take your eyes off of self and look on Jesus. So Christian, us being gifted, Knowing we have some sort of spiritual gift should cause us to lay down our gifts right at the feet of Jesus, die to ourselves, and be set apart for him. When you say, wow, I never could do that prior to being saved, so I know it's a spiritual gift, you ought to say, God loves me. Have it back, Lord. It belongs to you anyway. And be set apart for him. And, and so all of this, the one who loved us and died for us. Why? Roman numeral 2. Because God is faithful. Look at verse 8. Paul says, Who will also confirm you to the end. To when? The end. That you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because God is faithful. By whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, confirmed until the end. It gives a timeline. Here's what he's going to do, and here's how long he's going to do it. He's going to confirm me to the end. There in your notes, confirm is a legal term ensuring a transaction was complete. So it's like if you sold a house, you know, on the day of closing, 
And, and you, you know, you've given the final check, you've done all that, and you show up at the title office and you want the keys to your new house, your title is confirmed. The transaction is complete. Take your keys and get out. No, I don't think they say that. <laughs> but that's what confirmed means. It's a done deal. It's all over. It's finished. And then notice, we're blameless. How many of us this morning would raise your hand and say you're blameless? In Christ, you're blameless. You can raise your hand. Raise your hand. I'm blameless in Christ. Because it's not because of what you've done. It's because of the cross of Jesus Christ. His blood makes us blameless in the eyes of God. Again, Guzik said, how can Paul be so confident of when this Corinthian church was such a mess, had so many problems? How can he be confident? Because God is faithful. It wasn't dependent upon the Christians in Corinth. It was dependent upon the faithful God they knew. He's the one that called them into fellowship with his son. He's the one that's going to confirm to the end. He's the one that's going to present us blameless. Wearsby said, we have the witness of the Spirit within us and the witness of the Word before us, guaranteeing that God will keep his contract to the very end. But he goes on and he says, this guarantee should not be an excuse to sin. Rather, it should be the basis of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he loves me that much, I want to live a life that's pleasing to him, and I want to be set apart. I'm already set apart positionally. Now I want my practical day-by-day -day life to represent what I'm already positionally in the eyes of God. Blameless, unblameable, spotless, without blemish, perfection. And again, not based on what I do, but based on what he did. We are blameless not by earning it. We receive it as grace, as a gift. There in your notes, in the end, Jesus will judge the sinful world. But the judgment of sin is not for his followers because we are blameless thanks to the blood of Jesus Christ that washes away our sin. And all this happens again because of verse 9, because God is faithful. Notice it doesn't say because we are faithful. It says, because God is faithful. Paul told his protege Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. See, if he wasn't faithful, he would stop being God. It's one of his characteristics. It's part of who he is. He can't be faithless. He's got to be faithful. Joshua McDowell said, Faithfulness is at the heart of all that God does. His truthfulness, His holiness, His love, His righteousness, and all the other attributes ensure His faithfulness. And He is incapable of being anything else. And so I thought about this. What is God faithful to do in your life? And I thought about some of the things He's been faithful to do in my life. Maybe you can add some to this. Tell me afterwards. But He's faithful to protect me from temptations. Now, I don't always take that faithfulness. But he's faithful. He's faithful to protect me from the evil one. He's faithful to purify me from all unrighteousness. He's faithful to keep all his promises. He's never failed once. He's faithful to help me in my time of need. He's faithful to help me through my calamity. And, and it endures forever. It's immeasurable. God is faithful. 
Because God never changes. And, and then notice Paul says, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. There in your notes, the word fellowship means partnership. You were called into a partnership. Sharing in common or communion with agreement and unity of one purpose. His. The prophet Amos asked this question, and I often use this first. Can two walk together unless they be in agreement? Can two walk together unless they be in agreement? So you can ask yourself, if I'm in agreement with God, if I'm in fellowship with God, then we're walking His way and we're in agreement. If I'm walking contrary, how can two walk together unless they be in agreement? It's a like-mindedness between the two parties. You see, before salvation, we've mentioned this before, we were enemies of God. But as Paul says in Ephesians 2.4, But God, my two favorite words in all the Bible, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when I was dead in my sins and trespasses, made me alive together with Christ by grace I have been saved. So at salvation, we enter into fellowship, partnership, communion with the living God. And then he wants to, and here's where it gets practical, brethren and sisters. <laughs> Roman numeral three, unity with other believers. Look at verse 10. Paul says, and catch these words. This is the Apostle Paul, founder of the church. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's house, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas, or I'm of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? Paul had all the authority in the world, not only as an apostle, but the founding pastor of this church, to command them to have unity. I command you to do it. But, but notice, he doesn't do that. He begs them. I plead with you. I plead with you to do this. I plead with you. Be of one mind. Proverbs 6.16 says, These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. That sounds pretty bad, abomination, right? A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift to running the evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and catch this, the one, that's an abomination, and the one who sows discord among the brethren. You see, spiritual unity is not something manufactured. It's a spirit thing. It's something we already have because of the common fellowship we have in Christ. And now, we are to use it. Because truth unites and lies divide. And we don't look at these things as a responsibility. Instead, we look at them as a love response. Jesus loves me. And this is his body. 
I heard someone say one time, how much do you protect your wife? And I thought about it, you know, I've had some people say some really crummy things to my wife and I want to go over and lay hands on them. <laughs> Not in a spiritual way. <laughs> but I thought about that, you know, you come after my wife and, and you're, you're going to get all over it. You're going to see the good, the bad, and the ugly because that's my wife. I love her. I mean, God's given her to me to protect and I'm going to do all I can to protect her. How much more the bride of Christ? The God of the universe, the body's his bride. You come after his bride. Wow. Wow. So again, we don't do these things as a responsibility, but it's a love response. For the love of Christ compels me, Paul says. Jesus willingly shed his blood on Calvary's cross. And on the third day rose again to prove who he was, that he overcame death and sin. And now there's one body with the head, Jesus Christ. And, and in my mind, the church needs to show the lost and hurting world more of what we agree on and less of what we disagree on. Remember back when we studied the book of Ephesians, it's been a while now, but Ephesians 4.4 4 says, There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called with one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's above all and through all and in y'all. So one body. Individual fellowships like Living Faith Fellowship, but only one body, the universal church. One spirit. Once you become a member of that body, the Holy Spirit indwells you. And, and Paul would ask, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is in you? One hope. What's our hope? Titus 2.13. Looking for the blessed hope. And glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's our hope. One Lord. Only one. Revealed in three persons. One Lord. Curios, boss, master. One Lord. One faith. There in your notes. Christians believe in the same essential truths. Even though some Christians may differ in non-essential matters of interpretation and practice. All true Christians. Agree on the essentials, right? The virgin birth, the death of Jesus as the only way to cover my sin, that he rose on the third day, proving who he was. Those are essentials. What are non-essentials? Non-essentials are some of the sign gifts and some of that stuff, and we're going to get into that weeks down the road. But those are non-essential things. And you see the church divide over all this non-essential nonsense when God says, there's one faith believe in the essentials of the Christian faith, then you are a brother or sister. All true Christians believe in the Trinity. They believe in the resurrection and other basic things. And then one baptism, and, and this has been misused forever and a day as well. In Ephesians 4, there in your notes, Paul was speaking about the baptism of the Spirit. It happens when the Spirit comes into a believer at conversion. Water baptism is simply a picture of that conversion that's already happened. And then notice, seven is one God and Father of all. All people who've given their heart and life to Jesus Christ become a member of the family. We all have the same papa. We all have the same dad. Imagine, brothers and sisters, why we fight one another so much. Church unity 
begins the moment you accept Jesus Christ and then the Holy Spirit indwells you. So the Corinthians had a lot of quarreling going on. They had these cliques and they had all these little things going on. And I love what Paul says again there in verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? There in your notes. Paul was not diminishing the importance of water baptism. Because water baptism was a command not only given by Jesus, but one that Jesus obeyed and followed as well. So he wasn't diminishing water baptism. He was simply saying, keep the main thing the main thing. Water baptism pictures the washing away of your sin. It pictures you coming up to new life. But that has to happen in your heart before it happens in the tub. Otherwise, the sitting water will do nothing for you. It's a representation of a decision that you've already made, and then you go public as it were. Alright, Roman numeral 4. Paul's call to the gospel. Look at verse 14. And, and picture what Paul is saying here. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Christmas and Christmas, lest anyone should say I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the house of Stephanas. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ, catch this, did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ be made of no effect. You know, there's a lot of good things that churches can do. There's churches everywhere. Different churches have, like, their own DNA, right? You can go to some churches who are just fabulous at this or fabulous at that and they're fabulous at this. And unfortunately, you can't be fabulous at all things. And so there's different things and there's a lot of good things churches can be doing. But we all need to focus on the main thing. And that's Jesus Christ. And even though Paul knew the importance of water baptism, he said, time out. God didn't send me to baptize. He sent me for another reason. And you would say, how dare Paul talk bad about baptism? No, he's not talking bad about it. He said, that's not my call. There was a specific call to the 11 apostles at the end when Jesus was getting ready to ascend back to the Father. And Jesus gave them a specific call. And we know it. And the Great Commission. And a lot of people say, this is the church. This is what the church is to be doing. And it's not necessarily wrong, but it is not the call for the church. This is what the Great Commission says. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, check it out, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, I'm not saying the church isn't to go. We support a lot of missionaries. We go on mission trips. I'm not saying the church is not to baptize people. And I'm definitely not saying the church isn't to disciple people. All of those would be lies. But that's not the specific call for the church. Paul gave the specific call to the local church. Let me share it with you. Ephesians 4.11. He, Jesus, Gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. So see, there's your evangelism, your pastors and teachers, there's your discipleship. So, so God gave those gifted leaders for the church. Why? There in your notes, verse 12. For the equipping of the saints 
for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Why? Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man that's complete, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why? That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Verse 15. But instead, speaking the truth in love may grow up all things into the head who is Christ. There's your God-given ministry for the church. And yes, it includes a lot of the Great Commission in there. So they're not conflicting, it's just different. Paul's call from the Lord was to preach the gospel. And again, he wasn't opposed to water baptism. He's just saying, look, that's going to be a natural part of what happens if I preach the gospel. God's called me to preach the gospel. There in your notes, Hodge said, well, therefore, it's unscriptural to make baptism essential to salvation or a certain means of regeneration. It is nonetheless a dangerous act, catch this, of disobedience to undervalue or neglect it. So, so though it doesn't save you, it is the first act of obedience you should do. It's the first act of obedience. If you've been saved and not been baptized, look, listen, I'm not promoting baptism. I'm not saying like I'd really like to be in the tub next week. But if you've been saved and not water baptized, you need to do it. Later, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.1, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. Catch this. For I determined not to know anything among you except for Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In other words, Paul said, I didn't come with a silver tongue. I didn't come with these wonderful words if I can just manipulate the crowd into coming forward at every altar call and get you to cry like a baby. I've done my job. No. No, 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 no. Paul said, I came to preach the gospel. And it's up to the Holy Spirit. You know what's so free is that I do what God calls me to do and it's up to the Holy Spirit, the results. The results don't belong to me. How dare we try to take them? It's God's job. My job is to do what he's called me to do. But if someone is so interested in eloquence of speech or something so regal, <laughs> rather than the plain truth of Scripture, man, what good is that do? Guzik said, The great gospel of Jesus Christ, the very power of God and the salvation, made empty and of no effect through the pride and cleverness of man. Yuck. So let's get practical this morning. We can get so focused on minor things and we miss the major. And I'll tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm good at this. Something happens on a Sunday morning. You know, all y'all don't realize at 5 a.m. everything blew up this morning. Computers and cameras, everything blew up this morning at 5 a.m. And it took till about 5 to 10 this morning to get everything back up and going. It was wonderful. And everything still isn't right. It's just great. But... I'm so concerned with trying to do this, and I'm running back and forth, running back and forth, and you're looking and you go, there's that rich guy, man. That guy never sits down. <laughs> you're right, especially today. But what I do is I'll walk by someone who's bawling in the foyer, and I totally miss it. 
And, and I feel bad about that because I get so blinded by I gotta be task oriented that I miss an opportunity to share the gospel or to pray for someone or to love someone. If I ever do that to you, true story, and I shouldn't tell on myself, but I was going to Bible college in Northern California, and I was attending this guy's church, and man, I tried to get this guy's attention for months. The guy would never even say hi to me, so one day, Tuesday morning, I'm there early for class, and this guy's walking, and I'm walking, and he just puts his head down. He's going to ignore me again. Oh, no, you're not. <laughs> I jumped right from him. He almost had to kiss me to stop. <laughs> and I'm like, good morning. My name's Rich. How are you? He never said hi to me again after that, but... <laughs> there are some time, and, and I didn't understand that back then, but I do understand it. You know, there's a million things going on, and, and sometimes we get so focused... And the stupid minor things, hey, if we miss a live stream one Sunday, forgive us. We're not perfect, and there's gremlins and demons in the computer and lay hands on it and throw it out in the parking lot or something. But the main thing is the main thing. It's Jesus Christ. Amen. And he loves you. And if I ever get to the point where I ignore you, please forgive me. Let, let the grace of Jesus Christ cover that because I do love being your pastor. It has been the best church I've ever served at. I love it. I am very content and happy. If God moves me tomorrow, that's okay. I'm ready to go because I'll never say no again. But I love, I love you guys. I really do. But the church is supposed to be about a few things. And it's number one, glorifying the Lord. That's number one. That's the main thing. Keep the main thing, the main thing. Glorify Jesus Christ. Equip the saints. Edify the body. Preach the gospel. And then fellowship. That's what the church is meant to do. So let me ask you personally, something in your life, are you majoring on the minors this morning? Is there something that you're missing this morning? Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. In other words, my body's been crucified. I'm dead and buried. Therefore, it's no longer I live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Rich is dead. Rich is dead, buried, and gone. And I've been raised together with Christ. That's my new life. And so when we live a life eagerly waiting for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will keep the main thing, the main thing, and put the minor things aside. So let me give you a couple of things that I came up with. And again, if you come up for more, love to hear them. But if we're not content, we need to refocus on Him. If we've been too focused on the battles and the sicknesses and all the other things that are going on in the world, it's time to refocus on Him. Amen. If we're constantly giving in to specific sins, it's time to refocus on Him. Here's a good one for me. If we're growing weary while doing good, it's time to refocus on Him. You need eternal perspective. And so here's like three things that I came up with to fix all that. And again, if you've got more, I'd love to hear them. But number one, ask and clarify what matters most to God. Ask and clarify what matters most to Him. He tells us what's important in His Word, and He loves to hear from His kids. So ask. Clarify the important things and focus on them. Keep the main thing the main thing. 
When we complain and nitpick and focus on little things, we can be sure that we've lost our focus. Number two, lay aside the weight of our sin. Lay aside the weight of our sin. Hebrews 12.1 Therefore we also, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Think about that, for the joy that was set before him. And then number three, finally, schedule your priorities. Schedule your priorities. Unless we spend specific time with God and His Word and in prayer, things in life will get so important and we'll never find the time for them. You know, I, I've shared this before, but for years I was always so busy I'd have time for devotions. And, and my wife, who often is my Holy Spirit helper, um, told me, you know, you really you need to stop that and we need to make time. So I purposely get up early so that her and I can have time for devotions and prayer together. And I, I got to tell you, man, this is a secret. Don't tell the women. But that is the most intimate time that you get to hear the heart of your wife. Things that you didn't even know were going on and you get to hear them and you get to be a part of the inner workings of God in her life. And that is so cool. But be flexible. You know, oftentimes I say, blessed are the flexible for they will not be broken. <laughs> God loves to change my plans because I am so staunch. I'm a finisher. I'm a completer. It's got to get done before I can start anything else. I don't care who's dying. It's going to get done. And God loves that about me because he oftentimes just takes my plans and shakes them up real good and throws them out on the floor. <laughs> So be flexible. Let God change your plans. Don't be so hyper-focused. God will get the things done. It's so wild how I'll say, but I got to, I got, I got, I got. And if I would just sit back and let God do it, He is able to make my eight hours into 50 hours if I'll just let Him have His way. It's amazing how He does that. But when I major on minor things, I lose focus of Christ and the desire he has for his body. And we need to refocus and put Jesus at the very center of everything we do. Because I'm telling you, when Jesus, with Jesus in your boat, you can smile in the storm. I mean, that is it, man. Jesus in the center of everything. He'll give you more time. He'll take care of all the problems. And just relent. You know, we all think we're so important. I got to, I got to. And Jesus would just say, just let me. That's hard for me. I don't know about you, but that's hard for me because I like to control things. <laughs> don't tell anybody. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on back up. And, and my, my prayer for you guys this week and for myself is to keep the main thing the main thing. Jesus loves you. That's the main thing. Give your life to Him. Let Him have control. And man, boy, watch what He does with it. Watch where he takes you. Watch how he blesses you. Watch how things all of a sudden that were such a big, fat, hairy deal. All of a sudden, it's good.
do it. Because with Jesus in your boat, you can smile in the storm. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you're so patient with us, Lord. You've left us direction. You've left us clear direction. And yet, Lord, sometimes we get so far ahead of you, we can't even see where we're going. And sometimes we lag so far behind and we can't catch up. Lord, help us to put you the center in everything and trust you and know that you've got a plan and you're going to work it out. And Lord, you bless us to be a part when we will simply give you your proper place. Help us to keep the main thing the main thing. And help us to let the minor things just kind of shed off. Lord, we love you. We praise you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this letter. Let us worship you now. We love you so much. And we thank you for the opportunity in Jesus' name and all God's kids said. Thank you for listening and we hope that you are blessed. If you'd like to find out more info about our church or any other resources like sermon notes or things like that, you can check out our website at livingfaithclamath.com. Make sure if you haven't already to subscribe or like us on whatever your favorite podcast app is. You'll find us at Living Faith Fellowship Klamath Falls. Again, be blessed. Be blessed.